The Horse Race is brought to you by Benchmark Strategies. Benchmark is setting a new standard as Boston's fastest growing public affairs consulting firm. To know more, connect with Benchmark on Twitter at Benchmark Boston. This week on The Horse Race, we're running through the first week of the MBTA Orange Line closure, and then we'll go through some primary primers as September 6th quickly approaches. It's Thursday, August 25th. Welcome back to The Horse Race, your weekly look at politics, policy, and elections in Massachusetts. I'm Steve Gazella here this week with Jennifer Smith. Our tireless co-host, Lisa Kaczynski, is off today. Quick check of the calendar. We are just two weeks away from the primary today, Jen. I don't know how this snuck up on us. I cannot comprehend what time has been doing for the last two years. And Steve, I don't have children to monitor because schools are about to restart too. How are you even juggling that? <laughs> That's always a question that I'm really <laughs> never sure even of what the answer is, even if it's, even as it's happening. Um, but yes, schools are starting. For some, they've started already. Um, some have gone back and the rest pretty much over the next two or so weeks will be, will be back in session. I do actually love this time of year in New England. You know, the hot time has passed. It's starting to cool off. Like all the, you know, great produce starts to show up. So the Massachusetts Chamber of Commerce paying you for this segment. Yes, you can just send your check to Horse Race Global Media Empire headquarters <laughs> in care of the horse race. I don't know, something like that. I mean, what I am looking out for is the great move in for all of the colleges and universities in Massachusetts. Uh, I don't really want to take bets or jinx it about how many people might get starrowed in a moment where uh, two entire lines of the MBTA are limited in functionality or just shut down entirely. But, you know, drive safe out there, folks. And uh, please do not try and drive a truck that is taller than the bridge under the bridge. Yes, definitely don't get starrowed. It is the big question, though. I think the first week of the Orange Line shutdown, as you're going to talk about in a little bit, is behind us. But of course, that didn't include BPS children. It didn't include a lot of the college students who are either kind of just showing up now or will be showing up in the next week. So a lot of chaos definitely left to come in terms of the shutdown. And please, we're begging you, the official horse race <laughs> position is do not get starred on move-in day. Thank you very much. This has been a public service announcement of the horse race. This is very important. I know it's a controversial position. Uh, we do, however, as a programming note, want to point out that we are, as mentioning, heading toward the primary. We have one more episode before that happens, the day after the primary. We'll be checking in on how everything went down, but then we'll be off for two weeks to let you ponder the results cry to yourselves a little bit if your preferred candidate didn't win or take it, and we'll be returning with all of your general election coverage right through November. So mark your calendars. I assume this is how you plan your lives. I sure would hope so. But that brings us to the question for which we've never once provided a satisfactory answer, which is, Jen, why are we here today? Well, it might not shock anyone. We are here to talk more about the trains. Uh, we're going to be taking a quick look at the beleaguered orange line and how the shutdown is progressing so far. And then we're going to continue our countdown to primary day by dropping in on races in Worcester and Lowell. So, shall we? Let's ride.
The MBTA's orange line closure has been in effect for nearly a week now, in bits and pieces, and riders have had to get creative with their morning commutes. Here to walk us through how the first week of the closure has affected riders, we're joined by Rowan Walrath of the Boston Business Journal. Welcome, Rowan. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Of course. Now, I think the first and most meaningful question we have to get to is, um, how is it going so far? And is 7,000 journalists on the train enough to keep the system operating? What a fantastic question. Um, It does seem like having so many eyes on this um, is a blessing and a curse, but one that perhaps leans a little bit more toward blessing. Um, I know my colleagues at the Boston Business Journal and I have been sort of tackling this from all angles um, in the lead up to the shutdown. And now, of course, in this first week, um, you know, we're not only covering the Orange Line shutdown, we're also personally affected. I had a coworker this morning say that his commute took half an hour longer than usual. He was kind of like, yeah, it's not that bad. We were like, yeah, but half an hour is not nothing, especially if it's on both ends. Like that's a whole extra hour out of your day. And I, I mean, I live in Jamaica Plain. I'm practically steps from Jackson Square Station on the Orange Line. The shuttle route is about a block from my house and I often walk on the Southwest Corridor. So yes, all of these infrastructure changes affect me personally as well. One thing that I saw leading up to the closure was, you know, not only are we kind of freaking out and figuring out how we're going to conduct our lives, so are my neighbors. Um, JP has a very active neighborhood Facebook group, um, which I'm sure is no surprise to anyone who is familiar with the workings of Jamaica Plain. Um, And what I saw over the last couple of weeks is people posting, trying to find carpools, asking each other what their plans are, whether they're going to take advantage of the shuttle buses or the commuter rail. Someone was asking if the shuttle buses are just, you know, charter buses, or if they had included some of the existing MBTA buses as well, um, because an issue with the charter buses is they don't have bike racks. So if you're, say, biking to Forest Hills, and then you're planning on putting your bike on the front of the bus, you can't do that anymore, Um, not with these shuttles. And actually, to that point, one of the big questions leading up to the shutdown was kind of the communication channels that the state was putting in place, how people were going to find out if, for instance, the commuter rail would be basically letting you wave your Charlie card at them vaguely so that you could basically use it as a substitute over the month. Uh, There's more blue bikes out on the street right now. So what have you heard either about the kind of functionality of these alternatives, but also whether or not people know what those alternatives are? I do think that people know what the alternatives are, um, whether through word of mouth or because of communication from the state is something that we'll never truly know. But folks are figuring out, you know, the commuter rail schedule, is it something that I can take advantage of? Is it something that I will mesh with my work schedule with these extra stops at Forest Hills and Ruggles and other stations? Um, Some people are taking advantage of the free blue bikes pass, um, which has had the added effect of there are fewer blue bikes available at stations, um, which was predictable. um, And I don't really know what you do about that, to be honest with you. I had the opportunity to speak to the director of organizing and operations at the Boston Cyclist Union, Eliza Parad, who is, you know, she's biking all the time, of course, but she is expecting there to be an uptick in cyclists um, on blue bikes and perhaps in their own personal vehicles as well. 
she told me last week that she saw a similar phenomenon at the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic when commuters no longer felt safe riding the T, switched to their bicycles um, along with other forms of transportation. Easier to social distance on a bicycle than it is on the T. And so she's expecting to see a comparable uptick in bike ridership this time around. Um, her organization has done some things to try to make first time cyclist commuters more comfortable. They had a couple of practice bike rides um, and they're having volunteers posted along the route, um, basically from Forest Hills on the south side and then from Oak Grove on the north side into downtown Boston. And we have to also talk about the implications for T-adjacent industries here. You know, you're the life science reporter at the BBJ normally, even though you are, of course, uh, deeply impacted by the Orange Line doing some nonsense. And then you and your colleagues at Bostino and the BBJ have been covering reactions from businesses who are really going to feel the impact, uh, as well as covering the implications for homeownership, people who live nearby. So what are you seeing in terms of adjustment over this month from businesses who depend on the tea, but then also are there longer term concerns from people if this is the sort of thing that might just happen with the MBTA now? Well, I think people really do have longer term concerns because the shutdown is sort of the acute phase of this illness um, that has been going on for months now and will be expected to go on for months in the future. Um, I mean, we were operating on a weekend schedule on weekdays well prior to the shutdown because we do not have enough safety personnel at the MBTA to have a sufficient number of trains run on time. People already feeling the pains of that. Um, and delays that are related to that specific staffing issue, we already know are not going to be resolved until next year, shut down or not. And getting to some of these alternatives that are in system, not just blue bikes, but then also thinking about the regularity of shuttles, uh, I did, of course, allude somewhat jokingly, but not entirely to uh, the very heavy reporter presence at all of the shuttle stops. Um, Governor Baker was tweeting out about the commuter rail, which he apparently rode in the other day. So as a reporter, what are you watching to see if kind of the non-bike alternatives are running smoothly? Because again, we're only one weekend at this point. It's true. I am continuing to watch the Jamaica Plain Facebook group, to be honest with you. Um, people are kind of posting what their personal commutes were like and saying like, yeah, shuttle buses were in fact on time. They were running every five minutes and it's great so far. Um, and here is the commuter rail schedule that I took advantage of and here's what you might do. So it really is about neighbors helping neighbors, um, which I always really love to see um, just as a human. Um, I think that there will be a greater test in the coming weeks. One, because of moving day, um, I'm just going to pretend that I am not picking up a U-Haul from a site that is on the Orange Line shuttle route and that I do not have to make a left turn to get to my apartment from there where traffic cops are changing traffic patterns daily on the fly to accommodate for the shuttles. Um, but my personal griping aside, <laughs> it's not just moving day. We're also about to have so many more people in Boston and this happens every single fall. You're going to have 
what tens of thousands of students at Northeastern University and other colleges along the Orange Line and the Green Line, which is partially closed, which I don't think should be forgotten in all of this mess. And I mean, honestly, those students already, they don't know how to get around. So <laughs> we'll see if they're able to adapt quickly or not. Rowan and I get to say this as uh, Northeastern undergrad alums. We had no idea how to operate the green and orange lines while we were there. It was a learning process. I mean, finally, the thing that I kind of have to ask is looking at the coverage so far of how this has gone, there's a bit more attention paid to maybe non-catastrophic, but still kind of not optically great construction-related derailments on the Orange Line as as work proceeds. Are you concerned if there are more shutdowns to come or what happens if another line goes down as occasionally it does? Uh, does the system seem to you equipped to handle a maybe unexpected delay aside from shutting down the Orange Line and again, the Green Line, as you noted, in between Government Center and Union? I don't know how many more shutdowns we as a region could take, to be honest with you. I mean, you just mentioned a couple of subway lines. The Blue Line shuttle, I believe, is still running on occasion. A number of buses have been rerouted for construction um, through Somerville and other areas, especially near Union Square, which is constantly under extreme development. Uh, the airport tunnel is closed. I don't. I really. I don't know what to say about this. You know what I mean? Um, <laughs> It's, it's difficult. There's only so much to be done. And I really think it's worth mentioning that the shutdown of the Orange Line impacts Black and Brown Boston residents more than it does a lot of the people who have been receiving media coverage. Um, my colleague Hannah Green at Bostino had a really great story recently she spoke to leaders from organizations, including E4All and the Roxbury Innovation Center, um, which is run by Innovation Studio. Both of these are on the orange line. They create community for small business owners and entrepreneurs in Roxbury, Hyde Park, Jamaica Plain. And entrepreneurs, of course, like other commuters, have to tackle these new logistical challenges but they also need to travel all around the city for meetings and speaking engagements, working on their pitch deck, going to some competition. And now it's just going to be that much more difficult for them when they already had barriers to access. Well, I think that's about where we need to leave it. Uh, Rowan Walrath of the Boston Business Journal, thank you so much for joining us. I assume not mid-commute to talk us through the region's foibles. Absolutely. Thanks again for having me. Last week on The Horse Race, we walked through the domino effect of elected officials running for new seats across the state. This week, we're looking at that in Western Massachusetts. Eric Lesser is leaving his state Senate seat, and joining us today to walk us through the implications from that choice is Barra Dunau of the Daily Hampshire Gazette. Welcome to The Horse Race, Barra. Glad to be here. Um, glad to be talking. So walk us through this at a high level. So Eric Lesser is uh, currently represents one of the districts that covers Hampton County, and uh, it stretches into parts of Hampshire County as well, which is why we cover it. Um, it has currently both uh, Belchertown and Granby in it. Um, redistricting has put South Hadley into it. There's other changes to the border, but 
broadly, it is a suburban seat that has Longmeadow in it. And uh, Lesser is from Longmeadow. And, you know, it's been, he's been pretty comfortably ensconced in said seat. He's running for lieutenant governor right now. And so that uh, opened up a seat that, you know, is pretty safely democratic. Um, it's been known that most Senate seats in Massachusetts are pretty safely democratic. This is also one where, again, you know, like the, Rep the Republicans, at least this day and age, uh, I don't think would have a very good chance of, uh, of, of taking it. So, you know, the primary is going to be the election for this one. And speaking of that primary, we're just a couple of weeks away from it now. We've got two Democratic candidates, just one Republican running. Tell us about the Democratic candidates, both who they are and kind of how their positions and issues are breaking down as the primary approaches. So this is actually kind of interesting to me when I look at this primary, because typically when you're looking at a primary race, especially with the, within the Democratic Party recently, it's going to be, you know, progressive versus moderate, establishment versus more insurgent. Um, there may be a socialist presence in there that can be taking up different lanes. With this particular situation, Oliveira, he's currently a state rep. Um, he has a lot of labor support, and he also has some support from local elected officials, although as well, we'll get into that. It's not as much as you would think because his opponents actually uh, picked up a decent, uh, decent chunk of that. Um, Cindy Levin Epstein is the other person who's running. She's a little younger, although again, she's in her 20s and he's and Oliver is 35. So again, both of them are babies in terms of like political world. But you know, on the flip side of that, they both could potentially have a very long future ahead of them in the Senate. Uh, the interesting thing about it is, is that so Oliver has a lot of labor support where in terms of his endorsements, he's got the mass AFL-CIO. And similarly, he also has Planned Parenthood. Um, but, you know, Sydney has actually picked up a decent uh, number of local elected supports as well. Uh, Nicole LaChapelle, who's the mayor of East Hampton, who should, it should be noted East Hampton's not in the district. Josh Garcia, who's mayor of Holyoke, which is not in the district. But, you know, again, these are still heavies who have um, fundraising prowess and, uh, and connections through here. But in terms of their positions, um, they're pretty similar. Both of their very much back east-west rail and both kind of have pretty much a uh, uh, mainstream liberal democratic kind of kind of tenor to it. Neither of them are really either leaning into like the Eric Adams kind of conservative slash moderate backlash and neither of them are really acting you know like in terms of like the ultra progressive level and such too which you know if, if you're wondering okay how common is that in western Massachusetts uh, when in 2018 when there's basically a big reshuffling of all the, the seats, so the Hampshire County-based state rep seats and Senate seats, everyone was basically jostling to like endorse single-payer healthcare and uh, other like re real liberal Bernie Sanders style things. So, you know, what you're talking about it with, around here is that, you know, someone can and do, does run with that kind of high liberal level, but neither of them are really doing this. So it's interesting in many ways, kind of a contest of personalities rather than party faction or policies. So how are you gauging the front runner in the race here? Who has the advantage going forward? My gut is going to usually lean on, especially in a Democratic primary, but the person who has the most labor endorsements and also endorsements of organizations like Planned Parenthood, I mean, and someone who is institutional. So Oliveira would be the person who I would like lean towards um, being able to pull this race out. But that being said, um, you know, 
Levin Epstein has definitely a big social media presence. She has a lot of institutional support within the Democratic Party. She is campaigning all the time. So I think that, you know, this is a race where, although if you had me, you know, put a bet on it, I'd say Oliveira, but she is definitely running the kind of race you run if you want to come from behind and win. But then, of course, Oliveira is a state rep right now and in running for state Senate vacates his state rep seat. So what's likely to happen there? I know that race was very close last time. Are we expecting that to stay in Democratic hands or could this be a flip for Republicans? This could definitely be a flip for Republicans. You know, Hampton County is one of the places where the Republicans are able to win races in uh, in Massachusetts. So, you know, in terms of one of those um, like actual achievable things, the way it's drawn, it's achievable, but it's a little less so than when Oliveira won. So when Oliveira won, there was less of these liberal hill towns slash rural communities that were added to it. And I think that adding places like Pelham may have made it a lot harder stretch for the Republicans. That being said, this is going to be a competitive race. Um, uh, so uh, Oliveira's pro, former opponent, uh, Chip Harrington, who's from Ludlow, is running on the Republican side. It's going to definitely be a possibility that the Republicans will take this. But as we've been seeing in the special elections, like last night in New York 19, uh, you know, this is not looking like a red wave per se. I do not think that what we're going to be seeing is like in 2010, where you had a lot of Republicans elected to Massachusetts. I think that uh, Harrington could definitely win on the basis of just, um, you know, of his actual uh, record and running a good campaign. But I don't think the national and state headwinds are going to propel him to uh, to that seat on its own. But it's it's going to be one to watch. And it's going to be a competitive general election in Western Mass, which is not generally the case um, for most of these seats. And then pivoting to the last race that we're going to talk about in this segment is uh, the sheriff's race in Hampshire County. It's a three-wayer. How is that one shaping up and what are the issues at stake? What you're looking at right now is is that uh, we have our incumbent sheriff, Patrick Cahillane, and uh, he is being challenged by two people who used to work for him. Uh, Yvette Gilson, who uh, used to work for him in education at the Hampshire County Jail, she now heads like education programming for the state of Massachusetts and correctional facilities. And uh, then you're looking at Caitlin Cepeda, who is a correctional nurse who currently works at the Berkshire County Jail, but also used to well, used to work under KLN in the Hampshire County Jail. Uh, this is a this is a really intense race. And if you look at the current Daily Hampshire Gazette newspaper, there is um, a report of one of Kaylane's uh, employees like driving by another employee's house and taking pictures of his, his Cepeda sign. Um, there is a whole, and it's just also like, uh, it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty intense. And also it's pretty clear that neither Cepeda or Gittleson are stepping out of the way of the other. Um, both of them feel that they are qualified um, to, uh, to take this race. Uh, you know, Kaylane has been talking about his record at the jail and getting money to it and doing programming. And uh, on the flip side, you know, Gittleson is saying that things have not been sufficient with education programming. And uh, Cepeda has really been putting like a kind of a prisoner health focus on her stuff. So both of them are coming at their old boss from their own perspectives and, and also coming with some of their own grievances too. So this is going to be a competitive race. Um, since it's three ways, I think Kaylin probably pulls it out. But on the flip side, I can see either Gittleson or Cepeda winning it 
that's the one everyone's watching right now who lives in Hampshire County. Perfect. Well, Baraduno, thank you so much for joining us today on the horse race for a breeze through of some very busy races. Yes, thank you much. Appreciate it. Continuing our primary tour, we turn now to Lowell with BFF of the pod, GBH news reporter Katie Lannon. In a story this week, Katie dove into the history and growing pains of the Cambodian political community in Lowell, and she's here with us to break that down. Thanks for being here, Katie. Thanks for having me. Always happy to talk about Lowell as a former Sun reporter. That's great. This is your local territory, which leads us right into what's the backdrop of this actual state rep race? This isn't a race to fill an empty seat, but it's a challenge to a sitting representative. Yes, it's a uh, three-way primary contest. We don't see a lot of contested primaries featuring an incumbent here in Massachusetts, um, which is something horse race listeners have heard about many a time, I think, that most current lawmakers end up unopposed and kind of cruise to re-election. And Lowell Rep. Ratty Mom, who was the first Cambodian-American state lawmaker, not just in Massachusetts, but the country, has regularly faced challenges in his district. He was unopposed in 2020, but otherwise has seen challengers in pretty much every cycle. And what is the nature of these primary challenges? The two uh, who are running against him are also Cambodian men of Lowell. So what's been going on there? Yeah, they're both Cambodian. Um, That includes school committee member Dominic Lay and Tara Hong, who's a recent UMass Lowell graduate. And this is a seat that um, I talked to UMass Lowell political scientist John Clavarius, who called it really one of the footholds of power for the Cambodian community in Massachusetts. Uh, Lowell, as every former Sun reporter can and probably will tell you if given the opportunity, has the second largest Cambodian community in the country outside of Long Beach, California. Um, And I believe it's actually per capita, it's higher than Long Beach because the the population breakdown is a little different. And this is really the neighborhood where many of the Cambodian businesses, organizations, and refugees and immigrants from Cambodia have settled. So it's a, a symbolically important seat. And it is a time where we've seen more and more diversity within Lowell's local offices and city and state level. There are now Two of the three members of the Lowell delegation um, are Cambodian-American. Lowell also inaugurated the city and the country's first Cambodian-American mayor. And after a lawsuit brought by um, voters of color and advocacy groups, the city had to change the way it elects its school committee and city council, which resulted in more people of color holding those offices. So it's, it's a time of change and... Given that the Cambodian population in Lowell, uh, many arrived during the 1980s uh, as refugees, it's really staking out a, a claim in city politics and starting to look not just at representation, but at articulating preferences, at building out what people are looking for, just like you have seen immigrant communities do throughout American history. Um, Someone I spoke to compared it to the way the Irish population, which we know about here in Boston for sure, you know, you'd go from having one Irish candidate to three on the ballot, each representing maybe a different sliver of the community, maybe a different stylistic preference. 
So it's that that same kind of thing. And it's something we see play out all over the country. And to those stylistic differences here, what are the pitches? Why does mom think he should keep his seat? And why do Lei and Hong think they should have it? Yeah, Representative Mom is really saying that he's the the guy who knows what he's doing here, that he has a record of uh, delivering for the district, whether that's funding, whether it's helping constituents, um, whether it's the connections with other state and federal officials that give the district a voice. The two challengers say they want to improve the communication. They don't quite buy his pitch. So they want to be more present in the district. Um, Tara Hong, who is the youngest candidate in the race, he's 22, um, is backed by some progressive groups. He has a, an idea that he wants to change the top-down nature of House leadership or at least push back on it if he were elected. He wants to increase transparency at the State House, something we hear from a lot of uh legislative candidates running from the left of incumbents. Um, Dominic Lay, who's on the school committee, says he wants to be an independent voice, that he would not be beholden to any group or ideology, but do what's best for the community, and that he has experience doing that on the school committee as well. So it's a interesting slate of candidates. You know, they have some alignment on issues like wanting more economic development in the district, like thinking more needs to be done to, you know, help people out who are still reeling from the toll of the pandemic. The district has a lower median income than the statewide average, and it also has a higher percentage of people who speak a language other than English at home. So voter outreach is interesting. There's lots of multilingual signs, and um, it's not just Khmer, the Cambodian language, but a lot of Spanish speakers in the district. So it's it's pretty interesting to see uh, how you reach out to voters in this situation. So how are you gauging the relative success so far of all of these efforts? Uh, Is there a particular leader in the money game? Is someone racking up more endorsements than others? Because one of the things, of course, that was interesting to me reading through your article is Rep Mom said this isn't really an internal division question inside the Cambodian community. It's more of a natural evolution of, you know, the broadening routes to political power mean that more and more people as in plenty of other races, feel free to kind of jump in. So it's a competitive race. How are you getting your sea legs on on who's got the advantage? Well, I think one thing that's definitely worth noting here is that Representative Mom does have the the connections he's talking about. A lot of the people you see as Lowell's power players are donating to his campaign or participating in Uh, his fundraisers. So that's definitely uh, not worth discounting. And he has, of course, been challenged before and been reelected. So it'll be interesting to see if that's the case again this year. And then uh, primary day is nearly upon us. Do you have another recommended race that we watch? I'm going to stick with Lowell. This is an all Lowell day for me. (laughs) There's an open seat in Lowell as well uh, on the House side, uh, formerly held by current Lowell City Manager Tom Golden. And there's two candidates running for that one. Uh, Rodney Elliott, who's been a longtime elected official in Lowell, former state Senate candidate. And Zoe Zaniku is the other Democratic primary candidate there. She, like Dominic Lay, has worked in state Senator Ed Kennedy's office. So there's a 
a lot of people in Lowell, I think, who have gotten their their feet wet in one way or another and are interested in representing the city in the state house. All right. Perfect. Well, Katie Lannon of GBH News and, of course, former reporter for the Lowell Sun, thank you so much for coming on to break down what's going on at your old beat. Thanks for chatting. And that brings us to our favorite segment. And based on millions of listener interviews conducted over the decades we've been on the air, your favorite segment, too. And that, of course, is Horse Race Trivia. Today's a special edition, which offers negative 100,000 points for every correct answer. So please play at your own risk. And the question is, Jen? When did the first segment of what is today the MBTA Orange Line open? That's a good one. Yeah, I, I think it is good. Again, it's a risky proposition for anyone. So this is a, a warning to all of our regulars. You might lose all the trivia points we won't <laughs> dispense to you. So just go for it and clear the decks for us. But that is all the time we have for today. I am Jennifer Smith signing off with Steve Gazella. Our producer is Elena Eberwine. Don't forget to give the horse race a review wherever you're hearing us now to help other people find us. Subscribe to the Massachusetts Politico Playbook and reach out to the Mass Inc. polling group if you need any polls done. Thank you all for listening. We'll see you next week.